Superbrain is a labour of love. Alas, no podcast can survive on love alone. We don't have a sponsor, so we need your support for Superbrain to stay alive and kicking. You can make a one-off donation by following the Support This Show link in the show or episode description. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Season three already. Can you believe that? My name is Sabina Brennan and you are listening to Superbrain, the podcast for everyone with a brain. My guest this week is Lem Sisse, author of the incredibly moving memoir, My Name is Why. Lem was taken from his Ethiopian mother and fostered by a strict religious family. Lem was oblivious that his birth mum wanted him back or that the actions of the powers that be had prevented her from doing so. Lem was renamed Norman and the childless white family that he was placed with went on to have three children of their own. A family who returned him to social services like faulty goods at the age of 12 because he had become difficult doing things like eating cake without permission. They said they never wanted to see him again. Lem spent the next six years being shunted from care home to care home, where he experienced physical, emotional and racial abuse. His final two years in care were spent incarcerated in a notorious assessment centre, which was run like a prison. When Lem was 18, he asked for his files. 30 years would pass before he received them. His memoir is a riveting, raw and moving account of his life through his eyes as a child and through the distorted lens of his case notes. Despite this harrowing start, Lem not only survived but went on to thrive in life and has become one of Britain's best-loved poets, authoring several books of poetry. He was awarded an MBE for services to literature in 2010. He is Canterbury's Poet Laureate. He was the official poet of the 2012 Olympics and the 2015 FA Cup. He is a regular contributor to radio and television and a BAFTA nominated writer who has been awarded the Penn Pinter Prize and the Points of Light Award from the Prime Minister. Lem has been the Chancellor of the University of Manchester since 2015 and was a judge for the most recent Booker Prize. Listening to him read his memoir on Audible was an incredibly moving experience, one that I would recommend. I have so many things that I want to talk to you about that I could do a whole series called Inside Lem Sisse's Brain, Super Brain. (laughs) One of the first things that I want to talk to you about is smiling, right? Yes. You have the most amazing smile. I just think with your smiling, you are so generous because it's a gift. 
a lot of people see smiling as something reactive. You smile because something good happens or you smile because somebody smiles at you. Mm -hmm. But it is a gift that we have in our power to give to other people. And you seem to have learned that very, very young in life. I see it as something that has helped you thrive through your terrible years. Would you agree? I would agree. I would agree. Yeah. I, I didn't... Um... I thought the world was a, a smile. I think I say this in the book. I genuinely yeah. thought the world, it was a smiling world. And I hadn't put it together that it was me smiling at the world, smiling back at me. But yeah, as a child... I'm glad you, yeah, 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 I'm glad you said that because I have that quote here. Yeah. That I would put page. It's amazing. But that's the truth. Yeah. yeah. I think I lost, I lost my smile at some point as well. But yeah, it is a great thing. I wish I'd done more of it throughout this corona lockdown pandemic thing, but it is what it is. It is what it is. But number one, I'm not surprised that you lost your capacity to smile at sometimes. I mean, I've had yeah. times, you know, I smile a lot and I've had times where coming out the other side, you realise, oh, I forgot to smile. Yeah. I, I forgot to have fun. I forgot to laugh. And sometimes you kind of forget how to do that. You get so caught up in stuff. I mean, the the foster parents... I'm afraid they somehow framed my smile as a deceit. So they framed the smile as a way of deceiving people. And that then made me think, and because of what they did, that actually made me question my own, what felt like a natural propensity to smile. Yeah. Reading the book, My Name Is Why, and anyone listening, you really have to read this book. It is a harrowing story, but I think it's a must read for so many reasons. I actually think it should be compulsory reading on care training programs. Anyone going into the care profession, I really do think it, it should be compulsory to get that view of and also to see that when you write things about a child in care, the amount of power that you possess. Oh, my word. It's horrific and horrendous. You know, it's so easy to say but it's so damning when it's written. If you say that a child is attention-seeking, when that's written, that sounds like that's a problem. <laughs> but it is the most natural thing for a child to be attention-seeking because that's what children do. In fact, that's actually what adults do. That's what we all do in one way or another. We seek attention to our way of seeing the world, even if the world sees, you know, everybody sees things differently. But... um. The act of damning a child, it sounds damning, you know, that a child would seek attention. But a child who's already traumatised is more likely to seek attention. The thing is, we're hardwired to seek attention. That is the only way that we can survive. So an infant cries to seek attention because it has to say, well, like, you need to feed me. So, And that's why crying is such an aversive sound to listen to. You've got to respond to it, you yes, know. Yes. Um, but we've kind of... In particularly in Western society, like we've really screwed things up. Actually, to be honest, just as you say that, you know, a child whose cries are not responded to, so this was seen, we'll say, in the Romanian orphanages, mm. uh, they stop seeking attention, actually. And so they don't even cry when they fall. And so, right. you know, it's very traumatic. And it's, it, you know, well, we learn. You do something to get a response. And if that doesn't happen, well, you're... Yes, you're a feedback machine. Absolutely. But the thing is, right, so I grew up in middle-class Dublin, Ireland. I should have very little in common with your story but yet the universality of the human condition number one when you're reading a book like this you can't help but feel 
you know, be in there in that moment. But secondly, also, and I think a lot of my Irish listeners of a certain vintage <laughs> and older will totally identify, certainly with your first few years in the Foster family, because they were a very religious family. Now, they weren't Catholic. Mm-mm. But w- I grew up in an extremely strict religious home with my mother and father. And so I could identify with a lot of those things. So mm-hmm. what you're talking about is very common to us. Like we'd be told, get that grin off your face, do you know, because it was somehow disrespectful. Yes. But also, I remember a devastating, we all have these, no, devastation is relative. Okay, (laughs) so I'm talking, Mm -hmm. you know, but I remember my school teacher in primary school when I was about, say, nine, which was quite a harsh teacher. But her house was at the back of our house and there was a lane between the two. And she used to bring her two little girls into the class. You know, they finished maybe an hour earlier than we did. Do you know the way you have junior and, and, and senior? And she used to bring her two kids into our classroom because they live nearby, I wanted to play with them, you know? And I remember walking in the laneway and also a bit teacher's petty. Oh, I want to play with the teacher's Mm -hmm. kids, probably. But I remember bumping into them in the laneway and saying, hi, I'm Sabine, I'm in your mum's class, you know, and blah, 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 blah. And they said, oh, we're not allowed to play with you. My mum says you're a notice box. Which... (laughs) God, what's (laughs) a notice box? An attention seeker. Oh, Yeah. So so there are those things. And I, it, you see, I think it's I find religion rather divisive, disruptive. It's the cause of so much harm and mental ill health across the board. And it is quite challenging in our very formative years when we're told what's good and what's bad and, and you know, how the world works. When that is actually delivered to you through the distorted lens of a religion, there's a lot of work that you have to do to kind of unpick those things and pull them back out so that you can have yes a truer perspective of the world yes i mean what my foster parents did that was cruel cruel is the wrong word what i mean is they offered me all that they had and all that they had was religion so your parents will offer you what they've got <laughs> whether it's right or wrong but the thing that they did which was shocking is that they guillotined me from them at 12 years of age. So they fed me all of this stuff, put it all into my head, and then said, we never want to see you again, and we'll never visit you again. And I think that is the cruelest thing, because we many of us grow up with very religious parents, and that gives us a lot of stuff to unpack in later life. We go back to our parents, we form new relationships with them and with ourselves. We, some of us dismantle the apparatus which has been built inside of us in those formative years. Some of us embrace it in our adult lives, but to be absolutely cut off from it and then told it that it's your fault and then have to deal with that, I think that is cruel. Even if they couldn't understand how cruel it was that they'd been, I can't see how they could not have known that it was cruel. But cruelty happens because you turn away, right? Mm. And you turn away and you tell yourself a different story. So my family must have told themselves a different story, just like the nuns in the mother and baby homes, uh, just like the social workers who worked with the women who were in those mother and baby homes. Everybody thought they were doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. Morally, they thought they were doing the right thing. They thought of the women in those mother and baby homes as being immoral mm-hmm. and that they were doing the best. And nobody was nobody was questioning it at the time. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I think part of the issue is, and I know you feel strongly about care and and such a misnomer in a sense, putting someone into care when that's the last thing that actually really happens. I think one of the issues is it's hard for people to understand now when they've got 24-7 access to the internet and to see things and to observe and a mechanism to tell stories. Going back to when you and I were kids, that wasn't there. However, I think the problem persists today in care because we warehouse people into care homes that are outside the community. So we still have care homes for kids. We have care homes really for people maybe with intellectual disabilities, but we also have care homes. As you know, I work in a sphere and and feel very strongly um, about care homes for people with dementia. I believe that there's absolutely no reason for anybody to be put in a care home. What we need to do is invest that money so that people can be cared for and loved and nurtured within a community. But when you warehouse people, it is out of sight, out of mind. And people don't see it. And and I mean, say that's an issue when I talk about people with dementia. You know, there's a real othering that happens. That is what happened to you. You were othered because you were this... Actually, you know, you were a fosterling and it's so funny. One of my first guests on season two was also a fosterling, but she had a really lovely experience because Mm. she she became a fosterling because her mom died when she was very young and Mm. um, her father and mother were estranged. But her father's sister took her in, which Mm. is really unusual. And she grew up with them, you know, and she so she had this lovely experience despite the trauma of losing her mom so young. Mm. But it's this othering that happens where and I think this comes down to the dehumanization. I think you may have spoken about feeling dehumanized and it still persists and it persists across society amongst our most vulnerable people in society, the voiceless, the people who have no access, who have nobody to speak out for them. And unfortunately, what really galls me is that the people who are doing the harm are the people who are supposed to have these people's best interests at heart. But there is this othering where they do not see the human being. And I mean, that happens with people with dementia. You know, it happens with kids in care. And we have to break that cycle. We have to do something to make that stop. And what I find is when there's big issues like this, people often feel helpless, you know, and they'll maybe give some money and say, oh, God, this is terrible. It shouldn't happen. And they'll give some money and try and help. But they say, but what can I do? I'm a firm believer that great things happen when individuals do small things. And I think there's a huge case in point in your book with Mr. Oh, Mr. Wilson. Mr. Wilson. Mr. Mr. Graham Wilson. Wilson. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Mr. Wilson just did that one small thing that for me, I, and would you say that that was a life-changing moment? Not that you were aware of it at the time. Oh, I wasn't until I read the book and until much later on in life. I wasn't aware that this housing officer had really followed through when I ran away to ask him to help me find a home. And then I went back to the institution that I was imprisoned in. And I told him, I said, look, I've run away to see you at this housing office and I'm going to go home back to the assessment centre and I'll be punished and I'll be locked away for it. I said, but they're saying that they're going to find me somewhere to live and it's not happening. And um, he, (laughs) he then followed up, you know, found my social worker, got in touch with him, said, look, I've had this boy coming in and found me apartment, which I moved into a few months later. 
I was never told that that was because of what I did, because I'd run away and because of what what he'd done in response to me. No, they wouldn't tell me that. And uh, yeah, I mean, gosh, wouldn't it be wonderful if everybody who was working for an institution in one way or another did one thing which helped one person who was coming to the institution for help. Yeah. That was outside of their remit, slightly outside of their remit. Yeah, yeah. But there's a few things there I want to unpick. So I did a, a short episode of this podcast a couple of weeks ago on the benefits of kindness. And you are a very, very kind person. And you were put in what really is the notorious Wood End Assessment Centre, which you have described as a prison. And it was a prison. And in fact, it was probably worse than a prison because you hadn't done anything wrong. And that is a tough read that, you know, all of it is is hard but that's a particularly tough read what jumped out at me there was you spoke about the staff and their genuine unkindness to the extent that when you would play football they would bully the kids on the pitch I mean this is adults you know it's like a parent not letting their child score a pretend goal do you know what I mean I mean we all run slower when you're running with the child and they would kick the living daylights out of them but you did this wonderful kind thing because you were good at sport and so you would pass the ball to those who weren't so that they would have an opportunity to be good and to feel that reward that we feel when those things happen. Tell us about what was written in the report. Um... (laughs) It's funny, I read this the other day, that the staff got angry with me because they said he was good at sports, but he was unsportsmanlike because (laughs) he wouldn't play the... Basically, I wouldn't play the game. They had us doing sports so that we could release our um, pent-up energy as teenage boys. And they took advantage of that by being very rough as men. And I could see this happening, playing out in front of me. And I was like, oh, this is, we're all supposed to be fighting each other to win this game. And this staff are getting off on this in a sort of Mm. macho way. And and I thought, "This this all is not working for me. Number one, I shouldn't be in this institution anyway. And number two, it felt like really uh, undeveloped ideas of child development, you know, and that actually it was benefiting the guys, the people who worked there more than it was benefiting us. So I wasn't trying to be kind at that particular point. I was just deliberately not playing the game. Um, So when I got a chance to score a goal, I'd pass the ball to somebody else to score it because I wasn't interested in these people um, would you say you were trying to maintain a sense of identity so, or a sense of, or... absolutely i was trying to yeah maintain a sense of identity by the time i was locked in wood end i was you know a broken kid really you were on um, the verge of uh, yeah, what we might have called a then a nervous breakdown yeah uh, and yeah, it is yeah. it's quite surprising that you didn't you know reading the being a psychologist myself as well, like reading some of this stuff, you know, you're going to go, oh gosh. But I do think that the psychiatrist, was she a psychologist? Psychiatrist. Oh man, psychiatrist to? Penny Cook. Oh, she was oh. so. I mean, she was she so. Was so good. on the I money, mean, wasn't she? Yeah. If you're in a job and you're a psychotherapist or psych- psychiatrist, psychiatrist, <laughs> um, and you're working with a, a kid, you know what you write down matters. Standing up for them, standing up for yourself, actually, as a psychiatrist, what you yeah. believe, 
is really important and it's within your remit. You know, institutions, it seems to me, can quite easily make you feel that you've got a limited remit. Yeah, so she just did her job and she did it really, 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 really well. You really have spent so much time I think Kirsty Young, when you did Desert Island Discs, said that you've devoted your life to finding out what happened. And so it's very recent. How did that feel amongst all these terrible reports to read what she said? Well, I got in touch with her or she got in touch with me. She read the book. Uh, She found me and she emailed me. uh, Oh, good on her. Yeah, good on her, man. But... A lot of this has got to do with how we view children who are in need. Yes. Um, you know, the way we view the poor kid on the housing estate or the poor kids on the housing estate, the way we speak about families which are in need and um, the way we see people is how um, bills of prejudice, yeah. which then becomes replicated by the people who work in the institutions that are there to help those people. So, for example, there's a prejudice that happens, a real unspoken one against children who are in children's homes or even fostered. Number one, they're not supposed to mention that they're in children's homes or they're fostered because that's supposed to be shameful. And they're seen as a problem waiting to happen. You know, the idea that nothing good is going to come of that child because they're from that part of town, because that's who their parents are. Essentially, we're talking about a traumatized child. So, when we add on to that, this unchallenged prejudice, and it happens with parents who are waiting for their kids from school who think of that mother as not being a good mother and that child as not being a good child. You know, that prejudice is unchallenged. People will talk about it in the staff room. People will talk about it. Social workers will talk about a particularly difficult family. And actually, it's not that. It's families that are traumatized and children who are doubly traumatized. But if we add to that prejudice simply by speaking about those people as if they are less valuable, then really, by the time that child is in an institution looked after by the authority, all bets are off. Yeah. You know, what happened in the 1960s, by the way, those children in the 60s, 70s, 80s, those children are now adults trying to unpick what happened to them. But what happened to them in the care system, the ones who who didn't have a good time in the care system, number one, affects them now. But secondly, that really was our responsibility. That's it's not you know, it's easy to blame the social workers and blame the nuns. But actually, it's the way we speak about children who are in difficulty or women who are pregnant without a husband. It's our responsibility. We are the, we're the ones who let those women go into the mother and baby homes. We're the ones who let the police turn a blind eye when a child in care said something's wrong and the police didn't listen to them. And it turns out, you know, there was something wrong and it was, you know, Jimmy Savile or it was whoever. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And those children I, I... could, you know, turn around and say, we weren't listened to. If they weren't listened to, it's because of this unchallenged prejudice And it happens to people with dementia. It happens to people with visible mental illness. Yeah, no, I call it just the othering. I don't know any other othering way to is say perfect, it. Yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, that happens in lots of different ways. My youngest son is gay and there's an othering of gay people. Absolutely. So the way I say it, when it once you put the in front of something, 
the gays, the uh, elderly, yeah, the, uh, pubes, you know, the, the kids yeah, in. But once you put a the in front of it, you are being prejudiced. You are saying, well, it's the, it's them. It, yeah. You know, you know, anything. I mean, when anyone says to me, oh, they're to blame. And I say, well, who's they? Who is they? Because there is only us. And that's what we have to try to do. And, and I think I had um, Praga Agaval on earlier in this season. She wrote a book called Sway, which is all about unconscious bias. And it's something that appeals to me from a brain perspective, because we are full of unconscious bias. You will have heard about unconscious bias in terms yes. of racism and unconscious bias in terms of gender. But everything, we have an unconscious bias about absolutely everything it's the way your brain works it has to be efficient with the resources it has so it has heuristics and shortcuts and little habits but you've got this part of your brain which is perfectly capable of overriding it we have the power and the capacity to override our prejudice but we can only do it when we acknowledge it and recognize it and the only way that you can do that is so if i give talks about ageism or talks about how people need to be treated in care homes or whatever. I don't say what we need for them. I say, when I'm older, I don't want that. When I'm older, I don't want this. Because then it's about me. What do you want when you're older? I did a little piece before. I said, you know, I don't know anybody who wants to live in a care home. Do you dream of living in a care home? Well, then why do we have care homes? You know, what do people want? Wow, that's (laughs) such a good thing to say. Wow. But it's not something that anyone would aspire to have. So why are we producing them? Because they make money for people. Yeah, they really do. Aside from all the issues around what we had here, which was actually a baby factory business where people were taking babies and selling them on. And I know someone and I'm not going to say who she is because I don't have her permission, but she's Mm -hmm. now in her late 80s. And she now has realized that a young woman that was staying with someone nearby had a baby and she was told that the baby was ill or whatever. But she now knows that that baby was taken from her and gone. And she now has this terrible guilt that she didn't mm. do anything that, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. you know, but I think people of a certain vintage, they were less questioning. They were also a victim of an upbringing where they, oh, absolutely, uh, absolutely. You, know, you know, but we're still doing some of the stuff. That's what really, really bothers me is that it's still happening. I have three people that I know very, very closely had some similar experiences to you, although in different ways. One of them, um, I mentioned you when we spoke briefly the other day, was Pat Tierney. And he was put into foster care as an infant. His mother yeah. was an unmarried mother. And I mean, I would have grown up in a time where my mother would say, oh, she's an unmarried mother. And actually, yeah. one of my oh. friends, the same age as me, she got pregnant at 17. And her mother, who was a widow of seven kids, sent her off to live. And it wasn't in a home, but sent her off to live. There were certain families would take in pregnant girls. Yeah. And she was told she could not come home until she didn't have that baby. Her mother never, yeah. never even went in to see that baby. Yeah. I saw that baby, a beautiful baby. The dad was of dark skin color or whatever, yeah. the way black man, whatever yeah. the polite way is to say. She had this most beautiful daughter. My parents, the strictest Catholics on the planet, I think partially in desperation because I was their youngest child and were dying to be grandparents. They came in to see this baby. Yeah. And actually, my mother even said, can we not help? Can we yeah. The baby not come and live with us yeah uh, but no she had to give that baby up and yeah. uh, it has a wonderful lovely story though she went to live over in one of the caribbean islands my friend did and yeah. lives over there and has a partner there and anyway the lovely story is that her daughter 
who had a wonderful adoption, beautiful mm. parents, had decided to live on the same island as her mother oh and they found each other. How oh wonderful word. is that? Yeah, amazing stuff, but a lovely, lovely story. But I think that's recent. But yeah. Pat Tierney would have been around the same age as me also. I was an actor back then in a former life. He had written a book, The Moon on My Back. He had a horrific experience. He was pretty much put in and never taken out, never fostered, never adopted. When he was about 12, he was given to an older family, which was a common practice in yeah. Ireland. He was given to a family who were aging, who had no children and they had a farm and they needed someone to help around the farm. So he was given to them really as a work boy. Yeah, Eventually okay. then he started to get into trouble and he ended up in, we have a place called St. Pat's here. It was a like a reform school. It was a yeah, pr prison yeah, for kids yeah, under yeah, 17. Yeah. Long story short, he ended up doing drugs and all sorts. He did find his mother in UK, but then he did some petty crime and got sent back home here. And eventually he went to the States, mm. did a lot of drugs, heavy drugs, etc. Yeah. Found himself and found poetry. This is kind of the connection. And he lived in Newfoundland for a while and he became a poet in Newfoundland and a little bit of notoriety there. Eventually, he was diagnosed with AIDS through uh, HIV, through dirty needles. He came yeah. back to Ireland. Uh, this was very early. This was the early 90s in terms of HIV. He wrote a book called The Moon on My Back. He used to stand yeah. on Grafton Street and recite his poetry and sell his own printed books, which is you did that when you left, when you escaped. You know, yes, you did. produced your own book and sold it to striking miners. Tell me a little did. bit about the name of that, the perception of the pen. And I'll <laughs> come back to, to... Yeah, terribly titled Perceptions of the Pen. Um, I came out of the children's home out of Woodend, I should say, the assessment centre, firing on all cylinders. And, you know, they taught me how to sign on the dole. Their expectations were incredibly low for me, which is evident in the files which are printed in the yeah. memoir. So the first thing I wanted to do was to get my poems published. And there was a printer, the only socialist printer in my village called Stephen Hall. And he said he would print them if I typed them up. And somebody else on the housing estate said she would do some drawings to go with them. And she did. And <clears throat> I was only ever on the dole welfare for six months in my life. And it was the six months that I'd left wow. since I'd, when I, that I left the care system. And um, yeah, and I printed it out. Uh, it was 1985. I was 18 years of age. Yeah, it was a, a book stapled in the middle, you know, with a yeah, yeah. a sort of card cover uh, with a picture on it. And no, it was me, actually, me on the front of it. Oh, excellent. Uh, Great. Yeah. <laughs> you know that people, science says that people who smile more are considered more attractive than people who don't. <laughs> yeah. So perhaps you knew that, you learned Maybe that I was, early I was, on. I was getting ahead on the marketing. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I had dreadlocks as yes, well. Yes, I've seen. Dreadlocks. I saw. I saw a photo. I don't know where I saw that you were big into Bob Marley. Oh, I have to mention. I tend to jump all over the place, but I do okay. have to mention Errol Brown. Errol Brown. I saw him in concert on the Isle of Man. 
It was my very, very first what you could call it, if it was even a concert. And then we met him on the beach next day. And there's a photo in my attic of me about age 15 in a bikini with my arm around. Oh, he was such a superstar. He, he really was a superstar. He was. Yeah. I mean, he oh, was the man. Oh, you sexy thing. Oh, yeah. oh just amazing. Yeah. Amazing. I grew up in that middle class, as I said, area. And when I say middle class, we hadn't got lots of money. You know what no, I mean? I'm with my, you. I'm with you. My father worked and you yeah, had five children. You know, you, yeah, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, so there's yeah, not yeah, a lot yeah. of money to go yeah, around. No, you know, no, my, my shoes were from pennies or whatever, but it was a nice <laughs> neighborhood. And, and, yeah, and you know, yeah. I mean, the, basically, you know what? That's what happened. That's what happened. They were a lower middle class family and there's nothing wrong with that by the way I'm just just identifying where they were they come from yeah. working class parents and they were aspirational and they had three children and I after was the you. I was the oh yeah after me so I was the oldest and basically it came down to stress and money and, and that's think- all it came you know I do yeah I could, because I know that my I know now that my foster mother was suffering from postnatal depression yeah um, and if you think about the fact that she is a twin and that her twin is locked away in an institution. Yes. Uh, because, yeah. She had uh, oxygen deprivation at birth or something. Yes, like that. and that my mother felt incredible guilt yeah. about that so that postnatal depression makes sense. That yeah. My mother would have that when she's having a baby herself, you know. Yeah. The guilt you- that she felt. So I, th- I think that basically they felt that I was going to explode the entire family into a million pieces. And they did a very simple thing, which has got to do with the brain. They utterly catastrophized. Yeah. And then as their child, me, was going through his first breach into adolescence, they saw that as a threat to the status quo of the family. And it was basically me or them. Do you think that was a story that, I mean, all of our lives are just stories we tell ourselves. Yeah. They really are. And I think that's very empowering. That's what I say to people. You know, if the story you have, if it doesn't make you happy, make up a new story. (laughs) That's all it is. I love that. Yeah, That's all it is. You can just tell whatever story you want. And that's what we do. We're just trying to interpret what happened. But I think you were kind of maybe a little bit on the money when you spoke about them never having had a teenager before. Oh, I did. The teenage brain is not like any other brain. And and your brain in your teenage years is going through a complete and utter remodeling. That's why teenage behavior is so strange. It is completely remodeled from teen years. And it really doesn't reach completion until about 24 or 25. And it starts the remodeling from the back to the front. And your frontal lobes are your, we call them the executive control center. Right. But it is involved in decision making, risk assessment, planning, organization, all those really higher order functions that set us apart from the animals and, and that make us really human. And so a teenager is not capable of assessing risk, is not capable of doing many of the things that we expect them to be able to do. I think that's why it's very evident in the current pandemic with teens kind of breaking the lockdown and going out drinking and socializing. They don't have the capacity to assess the risk. They also do not have the capacity to learn from negative experiences. The capacity is just not there. They can't do it. That's why they need guidance. That's why they need a mature adult to actually help and to pay. And so for you at that time, I mean, it just seems so sad to me, but 
for taking cake out of the biscuit tin. Yeah, you know? it was all of those and things. Little, little things. But yeah. you at one point say, and I took more. And I took more. <laughs> and I don't know why I took more. Because as an adult, it doesn't make sense. But in your teen years, neuroplasticity is a wonderful capacity of the brain. It's the ability to grow new connections. And mm. it's wonderful. Every time you learn something new, you're getting new connections in your brain. And mm. it's brilliant. And the teenage brain is primed for learning and primed for neuroplasticity. It is at its most plastic at that point mm. in time, which is really important for your development. But thankfully, you kind of got out of that system at 17 and had sort of till 25 at a still developing stage to kind of work on it. Mm. Um, so the teenage brain is hungry for experience. It is hungry. That's why teenagers yes. try drugs. That's why teenagers want to go to movies where they're scared shitless. Yeah. That's why they want to go on the roller coaster. That's why I they see. play stupid games like chicken. The yeah. brain has to get as much information as it can because over time that's information that you can use. And so they are walking, talking sensation seekers. That's what <laughs> teenagers are, you know? Yeah. And I suspect that's all, you know, the sensation of eating the cake <laughs> was wonderful. And then it was just a sensation, but then the response was disproportionate. Um, yes. I, I mean, I, th I, 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 I do think that's precisely what happened. Nothing more, nothing less than two adults having no understanding of child development and therefore finding ways to deal with it which were inappropriate, actually, utterly, yeah. utterly inappropriate. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Yeah. This podcast is about talking to inspiring people about thriving and surviving in life. Mm, and mm. you said you remember when you left at 17 that you just didn't want to just survive. You wanted to live. And I call that kind of thriving. And unfortunately, that's very real and very important because many, many people who've been through your experience not only don't thrive, they actually don't even live. And that's what I was going to say to you. The Pat Tierney that I worked with eventually took his own life at the age of 39. Yeah, I've just I was just reading about him. Yeah, yeah, and it really yeah. it kind of upset me because I think there are lots of people who've been in the care system who take their own lives. 
and I wish that we had a count. I would like to know what the percentage of people who've been in care for a long time, what percentage of them take their own lives in their adult life, because I think it's a hidden statistic. Well, I'll have a look into it, Lem, and see if there's anything in the academic literature, well, you know, that that maybe is in behind. Yeah. I'll have a look, but it's definitely something that should be accounted for. I'd like uh, to I mean... know. I'd like to know. And I know it's a difficult figure to get to because we don't follow young people after they've left the care system. We don't follow their experience officially, you know what I mean? Because they're, they're yeah. then adults, they're outside of children's services. But I've heard of quite a few people who've been in care who have taken their own lives. And a lot have serious mental health issues. Yeah, oh gosh, yeah. It's huge. And within our system as well, even, you know, I mean, a lot in our system were the victims of sexual abuse as well. Yes, as, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's a, one other friend of mine who comes to mind talking to you. He didn't grow up in care. He grew up in his own family home, but he was... Um, Look, let me just interrupt you just for a second, yeah? just to say this. You know, the children who've got it worse are the ones who didn't come into care. You know, there are so many people out there who have been brought up, uh, abused inside their family situations, and they've got no other reference points. They weren't taken into care. They have yeah. to live with the memory for the rest of their lives. You know, it's one of the things that I've learned. I get a lot of empathy from people because of my experience. But I think about how many people are there out there who've had horrific experiences that nobody should be had that have been kept inside that familial structure. From the children that I saw who came into care, many of them needed to come into care. They yeah. were being abused by people who were themselves hurt, whatever. But there are lots of people. I wonder what the percentage is of people who don't find themselves into care and who have to live with that, you know. The person that I was going to talk to, he'd a rather unusual, like you though, uh, he has come out and lived and thrived. And he also, you sued the government, you know, yes. which good on you, you know. Um, I I think that's just an important act to take. It puts a spotlight on things. It brings accountability. But this friend of mine, he actually sued the Pope. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, yeah. So he, uh, Colm O'Gorman, he's executive director of Amnesty International Ireland now. Wow. So from the age of 12, he was sexually abused by a local priest. And his parents, unknowing that he was being abused, used to give him priest to take away on weekends and when he would go upstairs and cry and beg and plead and say please don't make me go please don't make me go they would force him to go and we were talking about this in terms of uh you say in many of your i've read so much and listened to so much about you you know you talk about secrets not being good and secrets aren't being good and colm held his own secret till he was in his 30s before he spoke out. I mean, he was abused solidly, raped repeatedly for four years. And then he had to run away from his own home because there was no sanctuary in his home, but kind of continued. But he eventually then set up One in Four, which is a psychotherapy group for people. One in four people are sexually abused. And he set that up. And rather amazingly as well, he became a therapist himself. And they also treat the abusers, which is something he he was a guest actually recently on the show, which I think is really, really important. You can't just point fingers and blame that doesn't equate with progress no I you agree. need to understand where it's broken you yeah. know 
and try to fix it. But I made a TV documentary a number of years ago called An Artist Abroad. It was for our Irish language station here. And it was about a woman who her mother died when she was three. She was one of 10 kids or something like that. And the father didn't know what to do with them. So he went to America and put them all in homes. He used to come home every summer. And the way she described that, they'd be taken out for three weeks. And the man downstairs says it's time for breakfast, you know, because they had kind of no relationship. But she was in Golden Bridge is one of our worst places. And she she was in there for the first year and a half of her life. And when she moved to the school where her other sisters were, which was essentially, you know, it was nuns looking after kids. Yeah. Um, she had malnutrition, you know, she had the distended stomach, etc. And her younger brother had broken his leg and he was eventually adopted by a neighbor. But it's going back to this one person. She had one nun in that home that she lived in who had a sewing room and she used to go into that sewing room and play with the pins. She would make paintings or whatever out of those pins. She's now a, an artist. She's been an artist, must be 30 years now. And I made a documentary about her art. So again, the past influences the future though. She's based in New York and she paints an abandoned canal in New York. And she then paints in Ireland abandoned famine cottages. And she looks for the beauty in the abandoned buildings, like even just a weed growing up through, she says it's new life. And would you say your poetry has been your savior? Well, I didn't realise it, but it has, yeah. Essentially, you know, the idea of being able to write something down became a way of memorising my version of events. Um, Okay. And, yeah, it really did, because I wasn't held in mind by anybody. I was dealt with as an immediate problem to be solved by, for example, a residential social worker who would leave the job in a year's time or who I would see in four-year shifts. In other words, there was no possibility of the memory of me being held in mind by any one person. And I started to realise that that is what family is. As bad as family can be at times, and there's no contract to say that family has to be good, but as bad as family can be at times, you have a relative experience you can have your memory of what happened your father will have his your mother will have hers or whoever's there your brother or sister will have theirs and family essentially is an argument I've said this before but it's a set of disputed memories between one group of people over a lifetime and I didn't have anybody to dispute the memory of me and so being able to write a poem about an experience was a way of giving oxygen to a moment that was otherwise starved of attention. So I, you know, I started to find myself in the institutions becoming more and more invisible. Yes. And yet poetry allowed me to find visibility. It matched how I was feeling with a time and place. And so it was record keeping of a sort. And with an event how I was yeah. feeling with a time, a place, an event. And that's what family is. It's what you were feeling at a time and a place and an event. And those three things clash. Your memory clashes with somebody else's memory or you hold that memory in mind relative to the other people. Yeah. The very first episode of this podcast was with um, a wonderful writer. She also wrote her memoir was her first book and she wrote a a memoir about herself from the age of four to 11. 
which might sound unusual. No, it doesn't for me. It's, it's wonderful. And she also happened to grow up in the same area I did. And actually, even in it, it just shows you, you know, the racism and the prejudice that you were talking about. You know, when we were in junior infants, age four years of age, we used to have to bring in a penny every Friday for the black babies in Africa. Yeah, Do you know, yeah, so that was yeah. that whole break. You mentioned this in the book, you know, that was the perception. Your mother actually was a well-educated woman, but the yes. perception was that you were of these poor black babies right. that the whole world used to have to look after, you know, was the black babies in Africa. It was a whole other, you know, and the only images we ever saw were of those starving or there was Biafra at the time. And yeah, um, right. just so again, it's a dehumanization. It's these yes. poor, almost like animals. It's othering. It's, othering. It's, it's, it's complete and utter othering. But the funny thing is, so essentially Hillary's story was that her father was having an affair for about 20 odd years. He was married and Hillary had two siblings, I think. But he used to take Hillary as a young child with him on his dates with the woman he was having an affair with, with his mistress. <laughs> and her story is wonderful, actually. I think it's called Hopscotch. It's really interesting because she tells it from when she's age five. Do you know what I mean? So she's yeah. making sense of all of those things. at that. So it's this is what I thought was happening when they were there. But she tells of one moment, because we do, we start, we talk about memory a lot in her podcast and we talk about being mothers too and about how we both, I had a blue chair and she had a red chair when we would feel depressed at just becoming, you can become invisible as a mother too. You, the person before becoming a mother you can lose that, you know, and we, we kind of discussed that. But she was talking about memory and I was saying to her how fallible it is. And she has this moment where her father's mistress was married also and they didn't live that far away. But one day the mistress father had had enough and he had a gun and he came to her family home looking for her father to kill him. And her mother is there going, no, 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 don't do it. Don't do it. Right. <laughs> and the three kids are there. And she recalls her mother saying, don't do it. It will destroy Hillary. Right. <laughs> and her two siblings recall him saying, don't do it. It will destroy the children. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and she said they argue over it. And I said, what does it matter? That's your memory. And that's your yeah. story. Yeah. It actually, that's your truth. Yeah. It, does it really matter? That's your truth. And you kind of take it with you. But that's what jumped into my head. Even though she had this messed, screwed up family, she still has people who were there at that moment. Yes, yes. You know, yeah. and, and that's what you're missing. Yeah. Yeah. My thing was that they were not there. They were actually, you know, the people just were not there. I, it was a very strange feeling of being disenfranchised of yourself because your yes. mem memory wasn't really worth anything. But in writing poetry, I found that I was valuing myself maybe. And also people enjoyed it. Yeah. So there was this total pleasure of expression and audiences that liked it and um, friends that liked it and um, so you were getting a much needed dopamine hit, yes, you know, the yes, reward, yeah, you were getting right, reward, yeah, yeah, you know, it's a that. hit, yeah, you know, yeah, that, that, yeah. that's, that's it. That's what's great. I do want to just read one thing out from you said, and, and I can't remember whether it's from your book or, or from some interview, but just for anybody, because it is very difficult for people who have a family, if you have a family where it was horrific or whatever, I'm estranged from my birth family. I have my yeah. own family, my kids and, and my husband, but I am estranged for, my parents are both dead, but just for my own mental health. Sometimes yes, that yes. happens with families. Yes, and no, it can no, be I've very seen, I've seen, Actually, I've seen that in many families, actually. In many families. Where that situation happens where 
a line has been drawn. And often siblings can go through this, especially when the parents are not around, actually. It's, it's um, well, for us, it a lot of unresolved mom- business. Yeah, well, we had a lot of unresolved business and my parents had a lot of, aside from the religion, they definitely had mental health issues and sometimes yeah. they played one off the other. And actually, that's something I was going to talk to you about, the unconditional love that you feel that you missed. And it's funny, my mother's love was fully conditional. You know, it was yeah. not unconditional. It was on the condition that you behave, which I suspect is what you had with your foster parents. You know, yes, if you're good, felt, you yeah. need to be loved. And so basically for me, and I often wonder is that why I became an actor was I never really knew who I was. I just, okay, who, what, what do I have to do now to be okay? You know, and my mother had this great capacity that if you did something that she didn't like or didn't fit with what she wants. She could withdraw her love completely for like six weeks at a time, just not talk to you. And it wasn't just with us because my father in his 80s, about a year before he died, asked me, would I get him a dog? And I said, I will if you square with mum because I'm not going there. You know, you have to square it with her. And I said, well, look, I can get you a foster dog because I said, you can foster a dog, see if it goes down okay, or you could foster it at weekends and it'll be an old dog or whatever. And he said, yeah, please, please, please. And he said, I want to experience unconditional love once before I die and that's one of the yeah I know anyway that went dreadfully wrong because he told me he had squared it with my mum and I arrived with the dog and he hadn't and oh oh that's a whole other story I will tell you another time a whole other story anyway 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 but um that's what I'm saying with your book even though I think it's testament to you with how it's written it just resonated with me in every sense. Now, I know that's something that I do when I'm just researching guests for the show. I always look for something that I have in common with that person. And I do that with people I meet. I just think it's part of the human condition, our survival. And I go, oh, I'm the same. Oh, I know that. And I don't know whether it comes from wanting to be liked. I don't know what it is, but it's just something that I do. It makes sense that you were an actor. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. No, no, well, no, I mean that in a good way. I mean that in an empathetic way, you know, that you're seeing yourself in other people or finding a bridge to other people's experience. That's one of the things that is the gift. Poetry does. Is, well, it's the gift of experience and of learning, and is that we all have individual experiences in life, but the beauty of being able to build bridges to each other is wonderful. And, um, I think I like that about my life. It feels like it's very unique to me, and that's fair enough. But I, and you're, I, there's only one Lemcisse. Yeah, yeah. There's only it, one person in the world. It's really, really unique. I want to yeah. say something about family. This is quoting you, and that's what I was trying to say to people. It might be hard for people who've been in a traumatic family to kind of go, you know, maybe it would have been better if I had no family. But this, to me, really kind of got to the nub of it. I'm breathing. But you take your breath away and soon you realize that you are utterly dependent on it. And that's the closest I can get to describing what a family does for you. Everything in life is connected and everything is connected to family. And that kind of really brings it there because it brings me then to the next thing that I really do want to talk to you about. I'm obsessed with the notion of self, how Mm -hmm. we construct self, how the brain constructs self, because Mm -hmm. we are our brains. There's just no other way about Mm -hmm. it, you know. We just are our brains. Uh, It contains everything. It contains our genetic material. It contains our family experience. It contains all of our memories. And it contains all of our capacity to interpret that and misinterpret it and do everything. And your sense of self hugely interests me. You, so much of our self 
is taken from the reflection of ourselves in others' eyes, how others see us, what others tell us. And one reason I'm obsessed with this is that I want to help people deconstruct their sense of self so that they can rebuild a mm. truer sense of self and really optimize their life. Because sometimes we hold on to things that were said to us at three years of age that are completely and utterly irrelevant, but we've never visited Absolutely. it or revisited it. And it's like what I say, you can make up your own stories. It's not denying the truth. That's not going into Trump territory. But the truth is about interpretation and understanding where some of your perceptions of self come from really helps that. And you've had this really, really unusual experience of not having those familial reflections, you know, having this need to write so that you have something to anchor you, something so that you don't disappear. I, that's the sense, maybe I'm wrong, but I just got no, this sense right. of I have to hold on to something, otherwise I don't exist. And from there then insanity comes, Yes, really. Yes. So much of your life has been focused on this early part. I'm kind of really curious to understand, particularly as well in the last four years, how your sense of self has been evolving and changing and like when, when does your sense of self move from focusing on those first 18 years to the ones that have happened since then, to the ones that are happening now, to the ones that may happen in the future? My name is why came out and it kind of brought everything up again. Um, yeah. Whereas, you know, I was getting to the point and I still am of saying, yes, but, you know, the beauty of this is that you have a choice to let it all go. And that is your call. The nature of family is that you find your place inside of it, but then you also have to let it go. And that's the same if you have a child. You'll see your child building their story about who they are and they may turn back at you and say, you did this when I was younger and I've never been able to get over it and I'm in therapy because of you or whatever, whatever. But there has to be a time where you let it go and you say that person's story is their story and, you know, I have to let this go. I have to, this is not what defines me. So yes. strange, you know, everything that you thought was the most important thing to you, you know, you fell out with your, I don't mean you, by the way, but you fell out oh, with, your, okay. <laughs> with your father or your mother and you built a house and you got a family and you're like, yeah, look, look what I did. It doesn't matter. Your actual story will matter to you for a lot of the time. But I think we all get to the position because this is when you're leaving this world, mm -hmm. uh, if you're at least aware that you're going to be leaving this world, you must come to a realization Oh God, none of it matters. Yeah. No, actually, you know, as I lay on my deathbed, I am not thinking about who wronged me. Yeah. You know, I'm not continuing. I want to live. I think that's the beauty of growing older. Like yeah. I, I have a few years on you, Lem. So, but I'm happier now. Yeah. Than I think I have ever been. Yeah. I am more comfortable in my own skin. Mm. 
I wish it wasn't as wrinkly as it is and I wish oh. my hair wasn't grey and all those sort of things because yeah. I'm human and, you know, yeah, I'm yeah. vain and yeah. we all are. Me and, too, yeah. But I was thinking about that because of your book, you know, I like one of my guests said to me sometimes, I feel like I've been in therapy, but I kind of feel sometimes with my guests, I feel like I'm the one going through therapy <laughs> because you talk about all of these amazing things. But when I was a kid... I had no sense of self like you in that it was, who does mum want me to be today? What do I have to do? And I'm not alone in this. I know yeah. one of my brothers yeah. explored this as well. He had that same sense. And I had a very strong sense of wanting and probably needing to be liked and did a lot of trying to be liked and wasn't very successful at it. I wouldn't have been a popular kid. Uh, I think I sometimes got liked very much by teachers, but that's not a good thing because then you get that. I can remember the kids, they used to do this licking lollipop sound and I didn't know what it was, but it was licking up to the teacher was what they could oh, see okay. me doing because mm -hmm. I was trying to be liked. But then I went through a period where I just said, well, you know what? People don't like me. That's nothing I can do about it. If they like me, they like me, you know, blah, 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 whatever. But that's just another reaction. Now, actually, I don't care. I focus on what I'm doing now, what matters to me. And I know what matters to me. And I think you are absolutely the same, not speaking for you, but it mm. matters to me to be doing something that matters, to be yes. doing something oh that God. makes a difference. Yes. And if I'm doing that, you know what, whatever else is kind of going wrong around, I have no control over. Yes. But have control over doing something that matters. And yes. you're doing so many, and you have done so many things that matter. Because it's the gift that keeps on giving, actually. When, you know, if you give, I started to, maybe this is getting older as well, but if you want help, help others. If you want somebody to talk to you, talk to them, talk to others. That's like, right. and it's the weird gift that keeps on giving. I've got to say that as much as we were talking earlier on about, you know, the Irish, you know, and the giving money to the black babies. <laughs> Penny for give, the black babies. Yeah, yeah. I've got to say that the actual act is because I, I I heard a fact once that Ireland is one of the most giving places. Yeah, generous. The Proportion most generous to our population, absolutely we respond generous, generous charitably in, yeah, in the yeah, world. Yeah. yeah, so the likes of Band-Aid and stuff like we proportionately oh, give man. more money and yeah. Ah, well, yeah. do you know what? The great thing about Band-Aid was, and I knew this for years, but you will know this clearly, but I was clear about it before anybody else seemed to be in England, I mean. Yeah. Like the English had no idea and made no connection between the famine in Ethiopia and the famine in Ireland. <laughs> they made no connection that, that actually no. uh, your man, Bob Geldof, you know, yeah. was making that connection when he said to Margaret Thatcher, you can't take taxes from the money that we're raising. That was directly linked to yeah. the Irish famine. You know, yeah, he was saying, yeah, you're yeah. not going to get this money that we're, we're raising. This goes directly to the things. And the fact that he surpassed all of the major political interventions that were happening in Ethiopia with the Derg, which was a quite a frightening kind of communist takeover that happened in Ethiopia for 15 years and was actually part of the cause of the famine. That's a longer story. But he cut through all of that. He cut through Margaret Thatcher mm. to make this incredible event. And all of that, okay, all of that comes from that penny that people give, mm. you know, from that nature of giving and the reason for giving. So as much as the idea of poor black Africa is one which yeah, yeah. is actually, it can be flawed. The act of giving is incredibly powerful. And 
I'd like to separate a maybe negative view of Africa yes. from the act of giving, giving, which yeah, I think yeah, Ireland yeah. in particular, and it will be connected to some of the more positive ideas that our religions have brought to us or have highlighted, like giving, you know, it's connected to that. And without wanting to throw out the baby with the bathwater, the Irish experience with religion has changed so drastically over the past 15 years. But actually, the good that you've done can't be ignored. Yeah, no, I get what you're saying. And I know you're saying about in a different context, throwing out the baby with the bathwater. It's something that I had thought in terms of something I feel really strongly about. So you were so desperate for a hug. Yeah. So desperate to be touched. And I just think we've got so politically correct. We've got so careful because of abuse that. No, I'll tell you what. I'm going to interrupt you. Yeah, do please, because I don't want to. In the institutions, (laughs) the reason that they don't hug children isn't because of political correctness, it's because of the insurance companies. We need to look at our institutions and say, how much are they serving what their core purpose is and how much are they serving themselves? A lot of the care system is locked down by insurance companies. Okay. In England, it's insurance companies that say, if you have a child, who's in the care system and they're fostered or they are in children's homes. It doesn't matter. And if that child wants to have a sleepover at his friend's place, he has to start a police check on the family that he's going to have a sleepover with. That means they've all got to have a police check. Now, that isn't because of looking after the child. That's because of the insurance companies. An adult not being able to hug the child when it may be, not always, the first thing that a child wants. They may not want a hug from a stranger, but they may at some point want that hug. That moment of realisation, of knowing that they are in an institution that's called the care system, that when they need it, will not hug them, means it's not fit for purpose because it's answerable to a power structure And that power structure is answerable to a further power structure, which is the insurance companies. What this means is that you get children who are in desperate need of care and in not getting it in what a system that's called a care system, that's where abusers come up. Look, the thing is, and that was one of my questions was, you know, how are we going to, I don't really want to change the care system. I want to abolish it and introduce a human integrated system. But we have the same things. And this is what I meant by throwing the baby out with the bathwater is, and I hadn't thought of it from the perspective of the insurance companies. But what I had thought about it is, because it happens in dementia care homes too, the focus on safety first is destroying care systems. That's insurance companies. And it is also denying that person's right to autonomy. You know, you put someone in a care home for dementia, right? They are not allowed to contribute to their community that they live in. They are yeah. not allowed to prepare their food. They're not allowed in the kitchen. They're not allowed to clear up after their food. They're not yeah. allowed to make their own beds. They're not allowed to do X, Y, Z, right? So now, by the, the way, can I just is, say, no, no, yeah, can, can we do, stop there? Because do, I just want to say yeah. this. If they're not allowed to do their own beds, they're not allowed to be functioning members of the community. What we have here is the definition of what they are. Because if they're not allowed to do any of those things, if they're not allowed to give to the community, if they're not allowed to make their own bed, what we are defining them there is then a problem. 
Yeah. So, oh my God, we've got to do the bed. Yeah. You know, this idea that a person who's in need is a problem or the person who can't look after themselves directly is a problem goes right back to Victorian times when this kind of care was first started, when these institutions were first built. It's a direct link. Women who are pregnant without a husband are a threat to the state and the church. Mentally disabled people are a threat to the status quo of community. Children who who are not in care are going to be a problem. These ideas link us directly back to Victorian times, to the building of our institutions, of the church and of the state. So we have a system which is looking at everything through the wrong side of the telescope. Yes. That means that at each level, I remember when I was in Woodend, there are staff who were in that institution who say, Lem, we were good to you. And they think they were good to me because, I don't know, because they let me out once a week. And what I'm saying to them is, no, you weren't good to me. I shouldn't have been in there at all. In the first place, yeah. So, you know, so... And I said this in the book, the most institutionalized people in the care system are the social workers and the people who work in them. And it's the same in mental health as well. Yeah, I agree. A whole different way of looking at these people. And also, geez, those workers should be paid appropriately for that. Yes. So so it's got to be looked at financially as well on every level. It is put down as if it's a menial occupation. It should be one of our most valued occupations. It should come with training. It should come with permission that if you are a carer, that you must question. Just because something has always been done this way, you need to question how it's done. I mean, I've spoken to the European Convention on Human Rights and Torture about things that happen in nursing homes. And I have personal experience with my own mom of some pretty awful human rights violations. But you see, the thing is, as you said, they are brainwashed by the system that they are in. And that's why I think our education system is at fault, because whilst I love poetry, I think we need to learn, teach our kids how to interpret and appreciate poetry rather than learning off 20 poems. We need to teach our kids how to question, how to decide whether something is factual, whether it's something, you know, just question, 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 question. But we tell kids to stop asking questions and we just feed information. So we should ask this question like of every moment, like who is this good for, the institution or the person? That's a one question simply to ask, you know. I think that's superb. Yeah. Superb. You have a wonderful thing that you say about anger. Absolutely. It's amazing. And just coming from the brain perspective, frustration and anger are very, very closely linked. So if you continue to engage in an activity that doesn't produce the expected reward, that release of dopamine, you become frustrated because it's not working in the same way. And tell us how you interpret anger. I think it's really insightful. I was always told as a young person this evening, one of the reports, actually, that um, I was very uh, charming but I was also very angry, as if I shouldn't be first and foremost. And I think anger is a natural reaction towards a dysfunction. And I remember realising as a young adult that I was just searching for love and that my anger was an expression in search of love. And then I looked at other people who were angry and I was like, wow, it applies to everybody that I can see who is angry. I can see they want love that's what they're searching for and so 
I know it's bad to hold on to your anger because it can turn in on yourself. Yeah. But I do believe that anger is a, an expression in search for love. And if you look at the angry people around you, and I'm not excusing, by the way, no. you know, uh, abusive husbands or um, any kind of abuse. But that's anger expressed as violence. I think yes. that goes to another level, you know, yeah. that, that's a different thing. But yes. I, I mean, I firmly believe that, like, we see anger as a negative. Absolutely. That's it. All of our emotions have survived because they serve a purpose. You yes, know, we have evolved yeah. the way we are. Yeah. People say, oh, it's really bad to be stressed. No, it's not. Stress is good. Stress is the thing that allows you to get up on stage, do your performance, your cortisol level, Absolutely. rise to the challenges. Poorly managed chronic stress is really bad for you, really yeah. bad for your brain. But so too is too little stress. If yeah. you don't have any stress in your life, you're going to be bored. Yeah. You're going to be depressed. And actually your brain is going to go around and start killing off those neurons you're not using because it can't waste energy on them. So your brain is actually going to shrink yeah. anger serves a purpose absolutely and you need to figure out why you are angry and as i said it's close to frustration so if you kept doing things that should have brought you love or a hug or a reward or gosh you're doing great lem or yeah. you're doing great norman which you were yeah. at that point in time and that doesn't come yeah. well you're frustrated yeah. and then if you can't resolve that frustration that then becomes anger and then what happens is and i mean i was a very angry woman at certain points in my life and sometimes related to hormones i yeah. had very little control and they're my regrets over raising my kids you know when i had kind of no control and yeah. and kind of lashed out on things but i didn't really understand fully then at that time too. We're human and we're constantly evolving and learning, but I think it's not good to pin some emotions as negative emotions. Yeah, yeah. I think they can manifest and become things like violence and all those kind of things if they're not addressed yeah. early enough. They're all signals. In one interview you did recently in the summer, I think it was afternoon tea with Lem Sasse, you said that during lockdown, you, like many of us, it allowed you to focus on what's important. Now, obviously, you were very busy reading all those 120 books for the yeah. Booker Prize, but the person who interviewed you didn't follow up and say, well, what did you discover was important? Oh, important. my God. Well, what's important in life is to um, is to live in the present as best as you can, I think, for me anyway. And uh, to be kind to yourself and to be kind to others and uh, and to let it all go. What would be, and perhaps you've just said it there, your tips for surviving and thriving in life? It goes right back to the beginning of this interview. You said the benefits of kindness. And I wrote down sixth sense. Like kindness is like, should be like a sixth sense, you know. Uh, the benefits of it are um, everlasting and very powerful. So that's what I would go away with actually, because we can become so consumed with our own story as I am, I talk about myself, but actually, it's actually about helping others, because that's the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> Funny enough. I think your poems are the gift that keep on giving. My very first, you're a performer and I'm a performer, and I, it totally resonated with me. You said in one of your interviews, I don't crave being in front of an audience, but I love being in front of an audience. And I feel the same. Yeah, yeah. I just, you know, once I'm there and, you know, and also as well, my talks are about science stuff, but they're never the same. Yeah. It's just something sparks and the core of it is, and that keeps it alive for me. My very, very first time on stage was at eight years of age in a poetry competition. 
and I had to recite a poem and the competition was for children under the age of 12. So I was the youngest person in the competition and I will never forget walking down off stage and the applause from people who weren't my parents and people tapping me and saying, that was amazing, you were brilliant. Uh, and I think that started it all off in a sense because these people don't even know me yeah. and they're telling me that I'm good, which I suspect is what you get from your poetry. Yeah. And I did win that competition and it started off that whole thing. And I haven't read poetry for a very long time. And you said in one of your, when you talk about being on stage with your poetry, yeah. that your poems are your children and that you give them out to the audience and you feel loved. And I wonder if you would let me read a little of one of your poems yes, back to you. Yes, yes. It's Invisible Kisses, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which is just wonderful. If there was ever one whom when you were sleeping would wipe your tears when in dreams you were weeping, who would offer you time when others demand, whose love lay more infinite than grains in the sand? If ever there was one to whom you could cry, who would gather each tear and blow it dry, who would offer help on the mountains of time, who would stop to let each sunset soothe the jaded mind. If ever there was one to whom when you run will push back the clouds so you are bathed in sun, who would open arms if you would fall, who would show you everything if you lost it all. If ever there was one who, when you achieve, was there before the dream and even then believed, who would clear the air in its full of loss, who would count love before the cost. If ever there was one who, when you are cold, will summon warm air for your hands to hold, who would make peace in pouring rain like laughter fall in falling rain. If ever there was one who can offer you this and more, who in keyless rooms can open doors, who in open doors can see open fields and in open fields see harvests yield, then see only my face in the reflection of these tides through the clear water beyond the riverside. And all I can send is love in all that this is, a poem, a necklace of invisible kisses. Thank it's you. It's a wonderful poem. It's lovely to hear it read. Thank you. I'm not sure if you could tell, but I was shaking reading that poem for Lem. It felt like a cheeky thing to do since Lem reads his own work so wonderfully well. But that poem, like so much of Lem's poetry, cries out to be read aloud. And I felt compelled to read that particular one to him because despite all the incredible achievements of his life, that little boy is there when you look in Lem, the man's eyes. It was an honour to speak with him and I wish I had listened more and talked less. But I had just listened to him read My Name Is Why and I was really quite emotional and so fired up by the injustice of it all that the words just sort of spewed out of me. My name is Sabina Brennan and you have been listening to a very special episode of Superbrain, the podcast for everyone with a brain. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.